Well, in our time in the Word this morning, uh, we're going to continue our series on the Lord's Supper, and we want to specifically ask the question, why is it that the Lord gave us bread and wine in the Lord's Supper? What's the significance of these things? Why are we using the bread that we're using? Why are we using the wine that we're using? And my hope is that you can see how, at the end of this message, in bread and in wine, God has indeed given us a beautiful picture of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all that we need. And so we're going to read four scriptures together. Uh, Sam will come up and read for us from Deuteronomy 8.3, and then Pat will come and read from John 6.51. These verses specifically talk about bread in scripture. What does bread mean in scripture? And then Sherry will come and read for us from Psalm 104, and Tom will come and read for us from John 2 to give us a picture of what does wine mean in the Scripture. Again, my hope is that when we see what Scripture intends through bread and through wine, we'll be able to see the fullness of salvation that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us now that the Lord would open our eyes to understand His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for revealing Yourself to us, for not leaving us in the dark. And Lord, I pray right now that whatever obstacle exists in our hearts or in our minds to understanding you clearly, um, that you would uh, remove that obstacle now, Lord, um, so that we could trust in you as we should, so that we can delight in your word as we should. So Lord, bless the reading of your word to that end, and empower me especially, I pray, for the preaching of your word, Lord, so that we can hope in you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. John 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. John 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, central to our celebration of the Lord's Supper is quite clearly bread and wine. 
Furthermore, if we want to be fed spiritually in the Lord's Supper, it's critical that we see how bread is like Jesus' body and how wine is like Jesus' blood. And fundamentally, what I want to point out in the message this morning is how bread is a very basic substance of everyday life. And so Jesus is our substance. He is our substance. Wine, on the other hand, is something very extravagant and given for celebration. And Jesus is also our joy. He is our celebration. And so in these two pictures of bread and wine, we see a picture of how Jesus was given both to satisfy our souls and to give joy to our hearts. And so that is where we are going this morning as we look at these pictures of bread and wine in the scriptures. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul was instructing the Corinthian church about how to, how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, he encouraged them to examine themselves before eating the Lord's Supper. Now, many have come to apply this in quite an expansive way that we need to examine our whole lives before we eat of the Lord's Supper. And this isn't entirely wrong, but in the immediate context, the primary way that the Christians in Corinth were told to examine themselves is specifically with regard to how they were taking the Lord's Supper. Were they taking the Lord's Supper simply as food to eat, not thinking about what these things mean, or were they receiving it with the spiritual significance that it really had? Were they receiving it as the body and blood of Jesus Christ? And so when the Apostle Paul said, let each person examine himself, he primarily meant, ask yourself, am I really eating this as the body and blood of Jesus? Or do I only see and want bread and wine? In the verse immediately following his command to examine themselves, he writes, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. In fact, he even goes on to say that some in Corinth have even died for this very reason because they ate, not even thinking that this was the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is a very serious thing that we do when we take the Lord's Supper. It has the potential to kill us. In fact, it will kill us if we take it nonchalantly, thinking that, oh, this is just regular bread and this is just regular wine, like it's some mid-morning snack. But it won't kill us if we take it reverently. If we understand that this bread really is the body of Christ broken for us and that this cup really does signify the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us. But we here in this room do have a problem in thinking this way today. We don't live in a very imaginative culture, do we? Uh, Things today are thought to be extremely physical and not spiritual at all, right? So when we think of a star, A star is not a heavenly body ruling the night. It's a burning ball of gas billions of miles away, as Pumbaa famously said, right? A wedding ring is not a sign of my unwavering love for you. No, it's an expensive trinket that I buy to prove that I care. A natural disaster is not the judgment of God upon a sinful people. No, it's the effect of high and low pressure systems coming together too quickly. It's very hard for us to picture the world with any kind of spiritual significance behind it. We live in a demythologized world. We don't believe in mythology anymore. We don't believe in spiritual significance to things anymore. 
We hold to a sharp division between the physical world that's totally governed by science and reason. That's the world that we interact with every day. And then there's a spiritual world somewhere else, which is what we go to religious books and religious teachers to learn about. We don't think that these two things truly come together. We think physical science, spiritual world, religion, and that's basically the end of the story. Well, the Lord's Supper throws a wrench in that. Take, for example, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So did you get that? That through the cup, this physical thing that we hold in our hands, we participate in the blood of Christ. That's something spiritual. Through the bread that we break. Again, something physical that we hold in our hands. Everybody knows where bread comes from. And yet it says we participate in the body of Christ. And so how could this possibly work? How could it be that mere bread and wine could help us to participate in Jesus in this way? How can bread and wine unite us to Jesus Christ? Well, for starters, let me admit that there is a degree of mystery here. There is a number of different theological solutions that have been suggested, but so far none of those solutions have won the approval of the whole church. And so to some degree, we must hold to this truth by faith alone without so much as understanding. We must simply receive by faith that the bread gives us participation in the body of Christ and that the cup gives us participation in the blood of Christ. This is, the, this is a real thing that happens when we take the Lord's Supper. It's so real that if someone eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, supposing that Jesus is not really present in the bread and the wine, then God may well slay that person. And yet, even in this mystery, I think there's a partial explanation that exists and a very important explanation for our purposes this morning. Namely, we see that the bread and cup are only beneficial to us insofar as we actually believe that the bread truly represents the body of Christ. And insofar as we believe that the cup truly represents the blood of Christ. In other words, it is by faith that we are united to Jesus, even in the Lord's Supper. It's not through some unthinking, mechanical reception of a cup and bread. No, it is through thinking about the bread and the cup, thinking what they signify, believing in what they signify, and by that belief and by that eating, these things actually nourish our souls. If we truly believe, if we truly have faith as we eat, then the Lord's Supper is indeed nourishment for us. Scripture is quite clear that faith alone unites us to Jesus Christ. And so it should be no surprise that even in the Lord's Supper, it is by faith in the working of these elements that we are united to Jesus Christ. Consider just a few texts. Luke 7 verse 50, Jesus says to a woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Romans 3, 23 and 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
So notice in these verses especially the direct connection between how the blood of Christ covers us from all of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. How is it that you get covered by the blood of Christ? By putting your faith in him, by trusting him. It is through faith in Christ that we are united to him. There are many other places in Romans that I could turn. Indeed, a large burden of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is to prove that it is only faith that can unite us to Jesus Christ, not working really hard, not doing anything else, but having faith in Jesus Christ. And Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And Galatians has more to say. Ephesians 3, 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How does Christ dwell in our hearts? Again, it is through faith. Finally, 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Faith is the manner in which we are united to Christ for all of his saving purposes, for all of his forgiveness, for all of his redemption, for all of the future hope he offers. We receive all of these things by faith alone. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper as well, we must exercise our faith. We must look to the bread, look to the cup and say, I by faith receive that this is the body of Christ broken for me and the blood of Christ shed for me. And in that way, the Lord's Supper is for us of spiritual significance, not merely physical, and it benefits our souls. Nevertheless, as I have indicated at a minimum from 1 Corinthians 10.16, Scripture indicates that we are, in a way, united to Christ by eating the bread of the Lord's Supper and by drinking the wine of the Lord's Supper. And so I contend, along with many other Christian theologians throughout church history, that the way in which the Lord's Supper unites us to Jesus Christ is by faith. And so here, for example, is words from the Second London Baptist Confession. It says, Those who, as worthy participants, outwardly eat and drink the visible bread and wine in this ordinance, at the same time receive and feed upon Christ crucified, and receive all the benefits accruing from his death. This they do really and indeed, not as if feeding upon the actual flesh and blood of a person's body, but inwardly by faith. In the supper, the body and blood of Christ are present to the faith of believers, not in any actual physical way, but in a way of spiritual apprehension, just as the bread and wine themselves are present to their outward physical senses. So do you understand what that's saying? The, the bread and the wine don't actually change. It's not flesh and blood. It's still bread and wine, but by faith in our hearts, we can eat this and we can drink this and we can say this really is Christ given to me. And that's why we can celebrate in the Lord's Supper because of that union that it is offering for us with Jesus Christ. To put two and two together here, faith is in its most minimal state an apprehension of something as true, a belief that something is true. That's what faith is. Because if you don't believe that something is true, you certainly can't trust it. You can't have faith in it. And so, as we see from all of these different texts of Scripture, 
the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and Romans and Galatians, it is critical that when we come to the Lord's Supper that we discern the body of Christ. That we see how the bread really is the body of Christ given to us. And how the cup really is the blood of Christ poured out for us. In short, Paul calls us to have faith in bread and wine in the same manner that we put our faith in God for our salvation. This is why John Calvin called the ordinance of the Lord's Supper visible words, because the cup and the bread are intended to be like words that God is speaking to us, that he is speaking to our hearts, that we place our faith in when we actually eat them to realize our salvation. It is a sign and a seal of our salvation. So what I want to do for the remainder of this message now is to examine how the bread of the Lord's Supper can be like the body of Christ. How a simple loaf of bread can actually represent or communicate to us, this is Jesus for you. And how can a cup of wine also communicate to us, this is Jesus for you. So I deny at the outset the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation or ex opere operato, where they thought that the priest, simply by speaking the right words, could turn the bread into flesh and turn the cup into wine, and thereby, regardless of what you believe, regardless of what you think, you somehow benefit from the Lord's Supper. It does matter what you believe. I can't just do this by my own spiritual power and make you benefit from this. You must understand how the bread is the body of Christ and how the wine is the blood of Christ. And as you do, this supper can truly nourish your soul. Now, one of the remarkable things that I realized as I was considering it this week is just how deep these connections are between bread being like the body of Christ and wine being like the blood of Christ. Even though I'm giving a message to it this morning, I would dare say that I'm hardly even scratching the surface of all the significance that there is to bread and wine. After all, God is the ultimate creator of the universe, is he not? And he had the plan of redemption in mind even before he created bread and wine. So surely when he gave bread and wine, he had probably a million things in mind about the deep and rich significance that he was putting into creation of the work of his son through bread and through wine. So I'm just going to give a couple very small ways that we see the goodness of Jesus Christ in bread and wine and understand that there is much more here than I could possibly fathom or explain. So first, bread. Jesus is like the bread of the Lord's Supper in at least two ways. First, Jesus is satisfying and bread is satisfying. Second, Jesus gives us rest And this bread of the Lord's Supper is a sign of rest. So I'm going to go through those two things now. Jesus is satisfying and bread is satisfying. In Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, Moses says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, think about that verse for just a moment. Why does Moses say bread there? Why does he say man does not live by bread alone? I mean, is there anyone who actually claims that man could live by bread alone? 
Everybody knows that man needs other forms of nutrition as well, right? I would think if you only ate bread, you would probably get sick pretty quickly. So people know that you can't only eat bread. You have to eat other foods as well if you're going to have a a healthy diet. So why is it that Moses says bread there? Why does he say man cannot live by bread alone? Well, I think he says that for the very clear reason that we all understand that bread is in a way symbolic of all the basic foods that we need. Bread is the most basic staple of food that we have. Bread, even in our extremely commercialized society today, is like food 101. There's that old food pyramid that I know we aren't supposed to follow anymore, but at the very bottom of that food pyramid was bread. We have the whole concept of comfort food, right? The foods that make us feel good. And there's probably no comfort food more basic than bread. The most basic meal that I can imagine, that I'm sure you've heard these words as well, the most basic meal I can imagine is bread and water, right? Growing up as a kid, I always thought that's what they ate in prisons, right? Bread and water, because bread, you know, is just the most simple thing, and then water is also the most simple thing. So there's something fundamental about bread, something fundamental about how bread nourishes us and sustains us. Bread exists in every culture and has ever since the dawn of agriculture, thousands and thousands of years ago. In other words, there is nothing fancy about bread. When you want to throw a party and have a big celebration, you're not usually thinking, oh, I just want to make sure we have some bread there. Bread is boring. Bread is normal. Bread is every day. This is why Moses could say, man does not live by bread alone. Because in a very basic sense, we humans do think that we can live by bread alone. When we understand bread as just some kind of abbreviation for food in general. Bread is the most basic, most universal form of food. Bread is food. No other word could have stood in that place. But then notice how Moses finishes the sentence. Man does not live by bread alone. But then what does he tell us? But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. One word is the same. One word is different. The same word is lives. Man lives by bread. Man lives by God's word. The word that's different is bread and the word of God. So Moses is talking about life. How do we live? How do we exist? How do we make it through our day? We are supposed to understand that the word of the Lord is just as crucial to us making it through our day as the most basic of foods. Moses is saying that there is a far deeper, more basic need that we have than food itself. And that need that we have is the food of the word of God. So bread is the most basic sustenance to our body, and God's word is the most basic sustenance to our souls. And here's the remarkable thing that happened in Jesus Christ. God's word became flesh. That's John chapter 1. And so now in the Lord's Supper, or rather in what the Lord's Supper memorializes, God's flesh becomes bread. You see, God's words, at least in the Old Testament, were not things that could be eaten, except figuratively. They could be heard, they could be meditated on, they could be believed, and in that way you could say that you were chewing those words and digesting those words, but it was a disembodied act. It was an act that you did with your mind only. 
and not with your mouth. But now, in Jesus Christ, God's word has truly become flesh. And Jesus became food for us by dying upon the cross. Now, I apologize if this sounds a little gross, but the death of Jesus on our behalf was gross. Everyone knows that you can't eat a live animal. Whatever flesh you eat first has to be killed, has to be butchered. And so in his willing death upon the cross for us, Jesus was proclaiming, I want to become your bread. I want to become your food. And if I am going to do that, then I must die in your place so that you can receive me as food. I am being broken so that you can have sustenance, so that you can have food for your soul. One reason we've chosen to use common leavened bread for communion is precisely because Jesus came to be bread for the whole world. Indeed, to reconcile all creation to God through his death. No more is this bread of the covenant only an unleavened bread that sits in a holy place. No, this bread is now for all peoples everywhere. Everything has been made clean by the death of Jesus Christ. And so we now use common bread to signify the fact that Jesus died this death that is now accessible to everyone. That by his death upon the cross, we are now able to have food for our souls. We were like people who were starving in a barren wilderness. Before Jesus came, there was nothing that could truly satisfy our souls. We, as in all of humanity, perhaps tried to feast our souls upon morality or philosophy or music or politics. We sought after everything to try to find something that would finally satisfy our souls, make us not hungry anymore. And yet we found nothing. And so in Jesus' coming, in dying for us, he was opening for us all of God's spiritual provisions by his death. And so in that way, Jesus is like bread. He met every demand. He fulfilled every longing. He answered every skeptic and doubter by dying on a cross for us and demonstrating for us that he would Bless us if only we would have faith, if only we would trust him. And so if we feast on him, we will be satisfied indeed. This is Jesus' message in John 6.35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. If your soul has never been satisfied before, then come to Jesus this morning, beloved. Come to him Firstly, by faith in the fact that he died upon the cross for you. And then secondly, come to him by eating the bread of this table, the very bread of life. When Jesus says that whoever comes to him shall not hunger, he means that when we go to him, that constant yearning that all human beings seem to have after everything at all times will ultimately go away. Just this past week, more than once, I experienced what's popularly known as FOMO, fear of missing out. 
I had anxiety in my soul about what I might not be seeing or what I might gain from looking at this thing or looking at that thing on the internet, on some subscription service or something like that. What is this fear of missing out? It is restlessness of heart. It is a hunger of heart that seems to always say, I need more. I need something new. I can't be happy with what I have. And so we are always restless in our souls. My heart went there because my heart and my mind were not fixed upon Jesus Christ. My mind was thinking too much on earthly things and therefore my soul got hungry. And instead of fleeing immediately to Jesus and finding my satisfaction there, I started to think maybe there's something else that can satisfy this hunger of my soul. But beloved, Our souls will always be hungry until we have determined to rest them in Jesus alone. Only Jesus can satisfy. He is the true bread of life. But bread is not like Jesus only in that both give sustenance. Bread is also like Jesus in that Jesus promises rest. And we can make bread only as the product of Rest, And so now I want to look at how bread signifies rest, just as Jesus does. Now this could be a whole sermon in itself, but let me paint this picture very quickly. The Lord's Supper is the New Covenant version of the Passover meal, which the Jews also celebrate this week. In the Passover, the Jewish people remember how God passed over their houses and did not kill the firstborn even though he took the lives of the firstborn of Egypt. In short, what they were celebrating when they celebrated Passover was salvation, was deliverance, the fact that they were not killed when they should have been killed. And so we celebrate the same thing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the fact that God has had mercy on us, that he doesn't kill us, but instead he offers us salvation, even as he offered it to the Jewish people. Well, Hear how Moses explains the bread for the Passover meal. This is Deuteronomy 16, verse 3. He says, You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. The way that the people celebrated the Passover meal was recognizing that as soon as that angel of death went over Egypt and killed the firstborn, and then as soon as Pharaoh gave that permission for the people to flee out of Egypt, they had to be ready to go. And so even as they were celebrating this Passover meal, it says in Exodus twelve eleven, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So they were commanded to eat this meal in a hurry because it signified that they had to be ready to go. They had to be ready to bolt from Egypt. And this is also why their bread was unleavened because it takes time for bread to rise. And so they ate a flat bread. They were ready to go. And in this way, this signified their salvation from Egypt, their rescue from Egypt. Well, we are now going to eat leavened bread for our Lord's Supper, but why leavened bread? Well, hear these words of Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. It says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you hear the significance of that, beloved? That he sat down at the right hand of God. The people of Israel, for their salvation, they were standing up, staff in hand, sandals on feet, belt on waist, ready to go. But Jesus Christ, when he accomplishes salvation, he sits down at the right hand of God. His work is done. To come to Jesus as our rest means that we accept his work upon the cross and his work in the resurrection. Ephesians 2.6 connects us to this accomplished work of Jesus Christ by saying that we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In other words, we are also at rest. We don't have to labor anymore. We don't have to do any more work for our salvation because Jesus has done it all. That's why it is merely by faith that we are united to him, that we are saved, because Jesus has performed every last task that needed to be performed so that all we need to do now is trust. And so we are at rest. So no longer do we eat the bread of affliction, the bread of haste. We eat the leavened bread, the bread of the new covenant, the bread of the finished work of Christ. If your soul does not know this rest this morning, then I encourage you, I implore you to come to Jesus for your rest. Come to him first by looking at his finished work upon the cross, whereby he did pay it all. And then if you have looked at Jesus as that finished work, then come to him secondly at the table and eat this bread of rest that God has given us. Second, let's look at the significance of wine. Why is it that the Lord has given us wine for the Lord's Supper? Let me preface these comments on wine now by saying that I do not mean to imply by anything that I say here that only wine is acceptable for celebrating the Lord's Supper. I do think wine is fitting for celebrating the Lord's Supper for the reasons I'm about to explain, but I don't think that wine is mandatory. All right, There are extremely valid reasons for abstaining from alcohol. And so I hope that for those of you that do choose to drink juice, understand that if you are perceiving this juice as the blood of Christ, the Lord will bless that as well. But I also think there are very good reasons why the Lord chose wine and not simply juice as the symbol of the new covenant, the symbol of the Lord's Supper. Firstly, wine too is a symbol of rest. In the Old Covenant, priests were not allowed to drink wine or beer before going into the tabernacle because they had to be alert and sharp and aware. Even now, when someone drinks wine or beer, we recognize that it means that you are off-duty, so to speak. You are at rest. Just like even today, a fighter pilot should not drink any wine or alcohol before going up to fly. He has a lot that he has to pay attention to, and his senses need to be very sharp. In the same way, Drinking wine symbolizes for us that we are at rest, that our price has been paid, the victory has been won, and therefore we are now allowed to drink alcohol as a sign of the fact that Jesus has accomplished all of our salvation. But I want to focus my attention more now in this closing point of how wine is a symbol of new creation 
joy. That wine is a symbol of new creation joy. So just as Jesus' blood is the means by which we enter into the new covenant, is the means by which the new creation has begun, so wine is a symbol of this new creation joy. So first realize that there are two parts to this. There is one part that's the new creation, and there's a second part that's joy. Now these are distinct things, obviously, but I want to keep them together because I think that whenever we think in Christ we have joy, we are to also think new creation. And whenever we think new creation, we are to also think joy. We would have no joy if we did not have hope of a new creation. And the new creation has begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, as the new creation is brought to fuller and fuller realization, we will have more and more joy. And so even though these ideas are distinct, they're very closely related. So I'm going to keep them together. There's three passages that I want to look at to flesh out this reality. Two of them very briefly, and then we'll linger over the third at the close of our time together. The first passage is Matthew 9, verses 15 to 17. Jesus says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Notice simply from these verses how Jesus likens his ministry, likens his work to new wine and to a marriage. In fact, this wine is so new, Jesus says, that if it were to be put in an old wineskin, and by old wineskin, understand just an old covenant, Old Testament religious system, then it would absolutely burst out of such a vessel. The new wine of Jesus Christ needs room to grow and expand. And so Jesus' ministry is like wine. It is like new wine. It is a new creation kind of wine. But this text all by itself doesn't get us very far. And so let me turn to one other text now, Matthew 26, verse 29. This is a text that's actually given to us in every synoptic gospel when the Lord's Supper is presented. Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus says that he is drinking wine with him at the Last Supper. And then when is he going to drink it again? In his Father's kingdom. That is in the new creation. And he says that he will drink it with us someday in that coming kingdom. And so as we drink this wine of the Lord's Supper, we are supposed to anticipate, think of this day when a new creation will be here and we will be drinking wine around the throne of God. Again, it is a symbol of this new creation joy. And now the final text that I want to look at is the text we read just before the message. This is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is the first miracle that Jesus did. It is the wedding at Cana of Galilee. 
So I'm going to begin John 2, starting in verse 3. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You have kept the good wine until now. Now, notice first how in this sign that Jesus did, this representation of his ministry, that the wine was a new creation of Jesus. Jesus began with water, and he turned the water into wine. In the same way, this is a sign for us that this present creation is like water. And what is Jesus doing? By his reconciliation of all creation on the cross, he is turning the water into wine. There is a new creation coming that is so much more glorious than what we experience here and now that we can fairly compare the here and now to water and this new creation that is coming to wine. Notice also that this wine was made in celebration at a wedding. And so this wine is a sign of joy and celebration. And this is a common theme throughout Scripture. We read from Psalm 104.15 that God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. In Ecclesiastes 10.19, it says, Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. And so in Jesus making this wine, he is saying that this is a cause for celebration. This is a wedding feast. And in a future week, we will actually look at how the wine that we drink in the Lord's Supper is a sign of the wedding feast that we will one day have around that glorious throne. And so this wine is in celebration for a wedding And then third and last, see that the wine that Jesus made was better than the wine that came before. The new covenant ushered in by the blood of Jesus Christ is better than any promise that God had ever given before. It secures for us everything that we need for life and godliness. It secures for us everlasting hope. It is the very best of wine. And that is why in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gave wine for us to drink and not simply water not even simply again juice but wine because with wine we celebrate and we recognize that jesus has done this transforming work through his death and resurrection to bring in something in the age to come that is more glorious than anything we have now and so beloved in all of this i simply encourage you this morning to come to jesus for your rest. Come to him for your sustenance. Come to him for your joy, for your celebration. This is why we have the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper. And this is what Jesus sought to accomplish by his death and resurrection, is rest for us, peace for our souls, is satisfaction better than anything physical could ever give to us. 
And so trust in Jesus this morning. If you apprehend him by faith, if you will believe in Jesus this morning, then you will find rest for your souls. You will find everything that you longed for because Jesus is that good. Would you pray with me now? And then as we continue on in prayer, I just invite you to offer up any sort of prayers of petition or intercession for yourself or for others around the world. Heavenly Father, we indeed praise you that by your death and resurrection, you have purchased our rest, you have purchased our sustenance, and you have given us eternal joy. I thank you, Lord, for the sign of that work that you give us in the Lord's Supper. And I ask, Lord, that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments, that these signs will become alive to us, God, that we will see clearly how you truly are the bread of life and how your blood truly is the blood of the new covenant. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see. I pray that whoever here doubts your great saving work, would you by your Spirit enter in now and give them confidence and boldness before your throne? And Lord, I pray that in this way we will know all of the benefits that Christ died to win for us. Lord, would you now receive our prayers of intercession and confession to you?